welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. Good morning. Good to uh, be able to be together this morning, be able to worship the Lord uh, together and to um, just remember all his goodness to us this past uh, year and a half with all the COVID difficulties and shutdowns and uh, delays and problems. It's been uh, been a very difficult time. It's difficult for church. It's difficult to um, be separated. And some some are still somewhat isolated, as a result of not being not being out. But in spite of all the the difficulty that we face, the Lord has blessed us. Uh, just thankful for uh, His provision uh, for us through through this time health-wise, and also spiritually. I feel like our, our church, even through this, has grown spiritually, and the Lord has brought other individuals into our, our family that we can uh, praise the Lord for that. But at this time, I want to recognize uh, those that are coming to uh, to join our church, new members, and uh, I just wanted to to remind you, you may you may be wondering, you know, what's the what's the purpose of church membership? How's it different than um, you know just just attending? And uh, we we do live in a in a day in which uh, many have lost the significance of ch- of the church of the local church. The idea of of uh, committing yourself to others, but church membership is simply believers that want to publicly identify uh, with and commit themselves to a mutual accountability and responsibility to the local body of Christ. So that, that said quite a bit. Let me just identify those parts again. One, one of the identifications, a public statement or identification with. It's also a mutual accountability. It's, it's saying that I'm making myself accountable to you and you, you as you make yourself accountable to me, it's a mutual accountability. We have a responsibility for each other, uh, just like you do in a, in a natural family. Uh, a, the body of Christ is a spiritual family, and in many ways, the responsibility is even greater than in a, a natural family uh, because of the spiritual ramifications of what we do or don't do. And so... Um, there's this mutual accountability and, and responsibility. Those, those two kind of go together. The accountability and the responsibility works both ways. And so we want to keep that in our minds this morning, and, and we want to recognize those that are coming to join. With all, the, with all the interruptions over the past year and a half, Irene hasn't been formally recognized as a member, but uh, she's been <laughs> with us. And uh, she's coming from the, uh, the Lakeside Church there in Sedgefield. And we've got uh, several families here. These four here, Vince and Maritza, and uh, Zach and Mili, and their baby, Vardy. Uh, these, these two couples uh, recently trusted Christ, and uh, through, through the in- influence of um, Jandre Kelly, and so they've um, recently trusted Christ, and just uh, growing in the Lord, and eager for the Word of God, such an encouragement. Uh, to us, and so be praying for them and their their new new life in the Lord. Also, uh, uh, Ruan and Estelita, and their two children, Liana and, and Joshua, 
And so we're praising the Lord for them coming and joining with us. Another couple just love the Lord, and, and you can see that in their lives and their children. And so we're just praising the Lord that they've come and to be part of our, our church family. And then uh, I want to leave out uh, Daniel and Kelsey and their three, Emma and Charlie and Henry. And so we're praising the Lord that they can come and serve together uh, with us here uh, in George and part of the uh, Agape Baptist Church. And so we just thank the Lord uh, for, for what he's doing and others, I believe, will be joining. Well, I want to go to the Lord in prayer, pray for these couples, love them, each one. Trust that you are praying for them and will make the effort to get to know them better. If you thought about extending a challenge to, uh, to make an effort to get to know them, have some contact with them, maybe, uh, maybe have them for a meal or, uh, or meet them somewhere for coffee or a dessert or uh, you know, s- some way to make a personal connection with each of these families, each of these individuals between now and the end of the year. All right, so it gives you three months, a little over. So um, that's, that's the minimum, and, and I hope you'll do more. All right, well, let's pray together. Father, we do rejoice in, uh, in you this morning and for what you're doing. We just stand back many times and are in amazement uh, at your grace and how you've worked in each of these lives individually and brought them into yourself and now brought them into this body. We pray for them, Lord. We pray that uh, you would just meet their needs, both physical needs and also especially their spiritual needs. May we as a body uh, just be a source of encouragement to them and uh, help in any way that we can. And uh, we thank you for the impact that they're going to have upon us as well. Already have been a source of encouragement to us. And uh, we, we thank you, Lord, for who you are and what you're doing and fulfilling what you said you were going to do. You um, said that you were going to build your church. And we thank you for that, what you're doing in Christ's name. Amen. All right. If you've got your Bibles this morning, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. New lighting. Now you should be able to actually see your Bible, so I hope that'll help. I still have some of the verses up here. They'll open your Bibles. We're back in Ephesians chapter 4. If you've been with us in the series, you know that uh, theme that Paul is entering into and this chapter is on the unity of the body of Christ. And from verse 1 through 16, he's going to promote and emphasize this truth of our unity. And we've seen that this unity, that's something that has been given by God and based upon the very nature of the Godhead, the unity that exists within the Godhead, and God's plan of redemption to save us and bring us into this body. So it's a, it's a unity that uh, is not manufactured by man. But we are challenged to maintain it, promote it, protect it. And one day, when we're with the Lord, that unity will be complete, be finished. It won't be something that we'll have to work at. It'll just be automatic. But until then, 
we are to, to strive to be diligent to promote, to protect, because here the, the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And as you know, this uh, can be difficult at times, especially because we're all so different. There's diversity within the body as the diversity there is in the people in the world. There's diversity also in the body of Christ. And we all have different ways of thinking and doing things. <clears throat> it, uh, I was preparing this or reminded of uh, you know, this whole issue with COVID and the uh, and all the problems that that's created with some people think you, you really don't need to wear a mask. It doesn't really help. And others are kind of on the other extreme. And then uh, some wanting vaccines, some not wanting vaccines. And all these different opinions that this has generated. And in the U.S., there's this big political you know, divisions and uh, problems related to, to COVID and you know, but because of the internet and social media, a lot of that spills over into other places like here in South Africa. And the churches, unfortunately, uh, experience that as well. People get get all worked up about one side of an issue or another and, and um, allow that to impact the unity of the body. And it's just one example of many things. And, and sometimes the things have no real significance at all. It's just because we can so easily get focused on ourselves and what we want and the way I want to do it that we fail to see the big picture, what God wants to do. And so instead of fighting the diversity, we need to submit to the Lordship of Christ in our life. He is the Lord and uh, we need to submit to Him and endeavor to Preserve the unity, seeking the good of one another. It's for God's glory and for our blessing. And I'm thankful for this church and for the way that you endeavor to do that. We're certainly not perfect. There's no group of people are. But I'm, I'm thankful for your heart and your love for one another. Well, if you think about this diversity, it's not just the natural diversity. We talk about languages, we talk about different backgrounds and, and different uh, you know, personality traits and, and uh, cultural differences. But there's also a God-designed diversity within the body. The same God who designed the unity also designed the diversity. So we need to embrace that and learn from each other. And, and love each other. And that often you know, goes against our flesh. It goes against what we just would normally do. And sometimes we struggle with knowing how to cope on a day-to-day -day basis with that. And sometimes it's not just in the bigger body of the church. Sometimes it comes right down into your own family, doesn't it? Husband, wife, parents, children, siblings. And we struggle with, um, with coping with that, being obedient so what do we do? The answer is in God's grace. God's grace that He gives us. When God commands us to do something or to be something, He always provides the way. He provides the ability. And this is the nature of His grace. Grace is, simply means His, His unmerited favor and enablement. 
In other words, He gives things to us not because we deserve them, but because He's chosen to, to do so. We, we don't deserve it. That's the nature of grace. And part of His grace is also not only giving us things, but He gives us the ability to, to obey Him. The enablement, the power through the working of the Spirit of God. That's God's, God's grace. And, and so he, he gives us grace and salvation. We're saved by grace. Um, but we also need grace in living the Christian life. Every day, day by day, we need God's grace. And as soon as we, we stop thinking about the need for God's grace, we're going we're gonna to fail. <laughs> as soon as we feel like, okay, I can handle this. I've got this on my own. And we do that. No, we do not say it, but we do it when we fail to pray, fail to stop and seek God's help and strength, and acknowledge our own weakness, our own failures. Then we start trying to live Christian life in our own strength. We need God's grace every day. And so Paul, we see in this section from verse 4 to verse 6 that we've looked at before, his emphasis there is that we're all one in the unity of God and His redemptive purpose for us. But notice how he transitions in verse 7. He's going to also talk about the diversity that there is. Uh, verse 7. I'm sorry, I forgot to put the slide up there. My title this morning is Our Victorious Lord. You're going to see how that comes about in the message. But verse 7. But Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, in the context here, he only lists five individuals that he gives gifts to for their ministry to the church. That comes on down in verse 11, where he says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. He says in verse 12, their purpose is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. And so these, these individuals are given grace and enabled to minister to the body. But it's not just these individuals. Notice again verse 7 where he says that grace was given to each one of us. And the, and the wording that he uses here, these, these two Greek words, uh, really emphasize each one individually. Uh, the one word would have been sufficient, but he, he puts two in there to make the point uh, that, it, that each one of us is given grace. And the implication is that uh, each one has received a gift or gifts from the Lord for ministry to the body. And this grace here is obviously speaking about this enablement, this ability to perform the task that God has, has called us to in ministering our gift. Notice how Paul speaks of his own ministry. Uh, Ephesians 3, verse 7 and 8, he says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable 
riches of Christ. And so we see Paul communicating the reality of this. And the same is true for each, each of us. It wasn't just Paul who received grace and gifts to minister. Each of us, and according to God's purpose, according to God's plan, have been given this enablement, this grace from Him, not for ourselves, not, not so we can you know, feel good about ourselves, but to serve, to minister. That's the whole purpose. Uh, these gifts of, of, of grace to minister were given individually according to God's purpose or the plan. So, so there's no room for pride or ambition in, in serving or how we serve or what position that we might have or what way in which we, we serve. Uh, God directs and guides us in that if we have a heart to say, I want to serve God. I want to serve His people. Well, in Romans 12, I'll just give you one verse there from that passage in Romans 12 where he elaborates more on this topic of, um, of the gifts. Verses 4 to 6, he says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we though many are one body in Christ. We've seen that before where Paul uses the analogy of the human body to illustrate how the body of Christ functions. All the different parts, all the different individuals, and yet each one having a function within the larger body. He says, and individual members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Well, notice in our text, verse 7, when Paul says that Christ gives gift to the church, it takes him on a bit of a tangent. And uh, we've seen that with Paul. It's normal for him as he's teaching on a, on a topic or, or in his case writing to hit on a truth or something. And obviously as he's, as he's recording these letters, he's writing under the inspiration of God. And so God is brought to his mind or to, or to his heart, you might say, this truth, and he elaborates on it. He gives it up parentheses, you could say, of, of, a, of a statement or in sometimes a lengthy uh, statement about that truth, and then he'll come back to, the, to the, the point that he was talking about. And that's what we see in verses 8 to 10, where he, he has this parenthetical message within the message about uh, Christ giving gifts to the church and how that helps the church function. Well, this section causes him, as he, as he talks about Christ giving gifts, causes him to think about the victory that Christ has won for us. It reminds them that Christ is our conquering king and uh, he, he's returning with the spoils of war, so to speak, like a like a king who, who wins the battle and he returns with a victory parade. And uh, there's a parade of um, the, those that have been conquered, taken prisoner. Uh, there's also uh, potentially those that, uh, that were uh, 
of his own people that had been captured or taken prisoner, and he's he's delivered them, and they're in the procession, and and, and those that uh, are with him, and that was a common common image of that day. We, we don't see it really today. It's not something that we you know, kind of have in the back of our mind. But in that day, when you talk about you use this image of uh, of the conquering king and the and the procession of of captives that. You know, that's fresh there in their minds. They've seen that. Many of them experienced that. And they know what he's talking about. Christ uh, is our victorious conqueror over death, hell, and the grave. He's purchased our redemption. Notice what he, what he says there in verse 8. Therefore it says, and he doesn't actually say where it says this or where it's coming from. But he says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Now this, this quote, he does quote here from Psalm 68, verse 18. And in that, in that context, uh, David is talking about God as a conqueror over the enemies of Israel. And I want to just give you a note here from the Expositor's Bible Commentary. On Psalm 68, verse 18, it says the divine warrior had successfully successfully subjugated the enemies, the rebellious, having made them captives and having received tribute from the conquered nations. So that's the imagery that he's pulled up with this quote uh, from Psalm 68. But when Paul quotes it, he applies it to Christ. And who is our, our conquering king who's ascended on high. But instead of receiving gifts, Christ, he, he applies it to Christ as giving gifts. And so there's, there is a, a different emphasis, emphasis there as was used in uh, the quote from Psalm 68. And there's a lot of speculation about the difference and how uh, Paul applied the psalm to uh, to Christ, but one of the things we need to remember is that so when Paul and the other others writers of Scripture wrote, they were not just using their own imagination; they were writing, being directed, being moved along by the Spirit of God. We call you know, Scripture also records this process of inspiration breathed out by God. The word being breathed out is what inspiration means. And so it is God's word. Although he used these human instruments to record the scripture and Paul is writing. And so God can adapt a quote from the Old Testament if he wants to. And he can apply it as an analogy or fulfillment in, in ways that uh, suits his desire. We don't have that freedom. <laughs> We can't, we can't say, well, I think I'll use this verse this way. Or I like this truth, and I'm going to find a verse to fit what I think. <laughs> that's, that's not the way we do Bible study and use the Scripture. We should go to the Scripture and see what, what is said. Look at the context and, and determine what uh, the Scripture actually says, what it meant in that context, and how it should be applied to our lives. That's, that's the way we approach scripture we we don't uh, have the the liberty to to adjust passages or to apply them in in uh, ways that um, 
different than one the original context. Uh, one one uh, theologian says as that some have suggested that Paul is probably making only a general allusion to the passage. Think about the passage in Psalm. He says, for the sake of analogy, rather than specifically identifying it as a direct prediction of Christ. End of quote. Well, in any case, uh, Paul wants to emphasize the nature of Christ's victory. That's what we need to see this morning. He's, he's emphasizing the fact that Christ is our victor and He has given gifts to His church. And He's drawn up for us this imagery of the conquering King and uh, winning the battle. The phrase that's used there, when He ascended on high, it depicts a triumphant Christ returning from the earth back into the glory of heaven. And with the with, with the trophies of his victory. Uh, the Greek text literally says he led captive captivity. And as you think about the, the custom of uh, these uh, parades of kings returning from battle, part of that was um, if, if the king had delivered his own people that had been taken captive, he's leading them out of captivity, his own people. And, and that may be what he's uh, alluding to in the case of Christ uh, leading captive captivity. Uh, in other words, he's, he's brought out of, out of bondage those that belong to him. And that, that, is, that fits who we are, doesn't it? That fits us because we were captives of sin. Uh, we were in bondage to sin, to Satan, to death, and hell. And Christ in His victory has won for us the victory. He's delivered us out of that bondage. And He's uh, taking us to be with Him. And he's already done so spiritually speaking. Paul would remember uh, wrote in uh, chapter 2 that we're seated together with Him in the heavenlies heavenly places. So positionally, we're already there. Although physically, we only arrive after we die or when the Lord comes to take us. So in Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, He conquered Satan, sin, and death. And He's delivered us from the domain of darkness. It's Satan's domain. And He's transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 1. Also in Colossians 2, we see this theme of uh, the deliverance and the victory. Notice from verse 13, he says, "...in you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him." That's the same, same as we studied remember back in, in Ephesians chapter 2. We're dead in our sins, now we're made alive and uh, seated together with Him. He goes on, Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. So now he's using here this imagery of a legal transaction, a, a debt 
that it was against a criminal and uh, reason that they would be condemned. There's this, there's this legal demand against them. And, and because of our sin, we have a legal debt against us. The law of God condemns us. And notice he goes on to say, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Wow, that's an imagery. And there's not complete agreement about what that means, but um, I, I tend to think that it's, it draws the imagery of the Roman crucifixion when they put on the cross the the guilt, the, the, what they're accused of and what they're guilty of on the cross when they died. You remember Christ, when Christ was crucified, what did they put it at the, at the head of His cross? That He was the King of the Jews. That's why, the, that's why they were, because of His his claim to be the king of the Jews. and um, But Paul uses that to say that the reason he was there was because of us, because of our debt. That's a, that's a thought, isn't it? We know that's true. But as you imagine in your mind seeing the cross, and you see the inscription on the cross, see your name there. See your guilt there. See, uh, see what's written against you as a sinner worthy of the judgment Christ took our place. And he says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. There's there's the victory statement that he is alluding to. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. This is the demonic rule. Satan and his demons, he disarmed them and put them to open shame. That's the uh, this, the illusion to the, the conquering king who comes back. And in the parade, there's these defeated. And the, and the, the king who who's, was the king of the country that uh, they was at war with many times is in the parade. And, and he's, he's put in open shame because he's now defeated. And Christ did that on the cross. Christ defeated our enemy. And uh, one who's in opposition to God. Satan still has uh, opportunity. God, God's allowed him to continue his opposition, but he's already defeated. He's already defeated at the cross. He still troubles us. The world, the flesh, and the devil still trouble us. But his power is already defeated. And because we're in Christ... The power of sin is defeated. We do not have to live in sin. We have the power over sin by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit of God dwelling within us. Paul explains that this expression, He ascended, means that Christ also descended. And this passage, verse 9 and 10, is, is often uh, misunderstood. And I want to take time this morning to uh, uh, work through some of the um, the ideas about it, because no doubt you'll, you'll hear and have heard many of them. Let me read it for you, verse 9 and 10. In saying He ascended, what does it mean but that He had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that He might fill all things. Well, many of you that... Uh, grew up in the Dutch Reformed Church, 
you probably remember quoting the um, the Apostolic Creed, Apostolis Pluf Belaidness, and uh, and there's one section there. Deal what said at Christus Kusterfet in Bakhrava is in near Hadalhet Nadi Hell. I hope they dare to dock beer upstand it. They do it, and that um, that creed goes back to about the fourth century, and uh, unfortunately that. That wording there of descended into hell or Sheol was uh, was translated and uh, or, or written and it's been it's been repeated, carried over into into many people's thinking, uh, and I believe led all people on the wrong path thinking about what Christ did after his death. Uh, that Jesus went to hell. After his death, I don't. I don't believe at all. That's what Paul is talking about here in this in these verses. Uh, as the Bible knowledge commentary points out this genitive of there in the statement, the lower regions or parts of the earth. That that genitive there can be taken in three different ways. In other words, it can be understood or translated in three different ways. Uh, first of all, um, it's the genitive opposition where. You can read into the lower parts, namely the earth. And if you're noticing, that's how it's translated in ESV that you see on the screen there, where, where it says the lower regions, the earth. In other words, that's, that's one way in which it can be understood. And it's when that case is emphasizing Christ coming to earth, his incarnation, and, and all that that involved. Um, the second way is a, a genitive of possession. And that would read into the lower parts which belongs to the earth and implies uh, or, or could imply his death as the focus there of him descending to the grave. Uh, and both of these truths we know are absolutely true and necessary for his victory. Christ had to come to earth uh, to, to be our substitute to be to to die in our place and that's the purpose why he came to die in our place and we know that he was buried and uh, in the scripture sheol is used in the old testament to talk about the grave both the righteous and the unrighteous in the new testament uh, sheol's translated with the word hades but in the new testament hades takes on a more negative connotation we speak of hell uh but both the righteous and the unrighteous obviously die and are buried, go to the, the grave. It's what happens after or at, at that to the soul that makes a difference, right? The righteous are with the Lord immediately. And the unsaved go into uh, to torment, into hell. And so that's, that's a major difference. Well, a third view here that... Uh, is often taken is the genitive of comparison, and that would would read something like into the parts lower than the earth, and in that case would imply Christ descending to hell after his death. And and regarding this this last view of Christ literally going into hell, some of the ideas associated with that are totally in opposition to Scripture. Uh, ideas like he went there to complete his suffering. For us, um, we know that's not true. 
The scripture's clear about that. Even Christ on the cross said, What? It is finished. It is finished. The payment was made. There was no there's no further suffering that Christ would endure or could pay the the, uh, the price for our sin. Uh, there's also the this false idea that he went there to defeat Satan. Well, again, Christ defeated Satan on the cross at his death. He defeated his him and his hold on us. We put our faith and trust in Christ and him. Well, related to this, some see support in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 19 for the notion that Christ went to Hades or hell to proclaim victory to the demons or the spirits in prison. And I want you to see that. We'll take time this morning to um, show you that just so you at least can know what I believe is being talked about. So 1 Peter 3, verse 18, verse 20. So pay, pay attention because it's a bit, uh, bit difficult to follow. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey, when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. So in this view that Christ went in the Spirit, it was after His death, and proclaimed or pronounced to these fallen uh, angels, these demons, uh, in hell that He had won the victory. Is is taken from uh, this passage. It talks about in the Spirit. In other words, in the Spirit of Christ. The word proclaimed there can can mean a pronouncement or a uh, in some of the translations translated preached. It's a it's a proclamation. It's a, it's a declaration in, in some cases. Uh, and and so they see they see that that these um, uh, people because or these angels because of what happened in the days of Noah uh, after the flood that they were they were consigned to hell and kept in, in prison there so that's a that's taken fast as it happened back in, in Genesis after the flood uh, or sorry before the flood and together here with what what Peter is talking about but, <clears throat> so what is happening I believe. I don't believe that's what he's talking about. I believe that Noah, he's talking about Noah preaching uh, to these people that uh, were in all that time, the 120 years that Noah was busy building the ark, that Noah was preaching to those spirits, those, they, they were, they were individuals just like us, the, the ones that were, that were lost in the flood, Noah's preaching to them. And he's preaching to them by and through the Spirit of Christ. They're now, those people are now in hell. He uses this terminology, the spirits in prison. Uh, they're now in, in hell, but they weren't, they weren't when they were preached to. They weren't when this proclamation was made to them or this pronouncement was made to them. So that's what I believe he's saying. And, and, <clears throat> 
If you take it together with some other things that Peter said, you see support for that interpretation. For example, in chapter 2, Peter, chapter 2, verse 5, he says, And spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. So that word preacher there is the same root word as was was in chapter 1 when it talks about the, the pronouncement from Caruso. It's, it's to herald something. And so it's used of, and there you clearly see that Noah was a heralder, a preacher of righteousness. And so we, we see the same wording there. If you go back to chapter 1, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 and 11, you see his usage of the Spirit of Christ being in and working through individuals in the Old Testament. Uh, he reads one, this 1 Peter 1, chapter 10, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, search and inquired carefully. In other words, these prophets who were preaching about the Christ and the grace that we would receive, they didn't fully understand all that they were uh, prophesying or, or talking about and writing about. He says, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories. So there you see that Peter is talking about these Old Testament prophets having the Spirit of Christ in them, uh, directing them to write about what would happen in the future. And so that is a, that's not a foreign concept, that Christ being the Spirit of Christ being in someone, working through someone in the Old Testament. And I believe that's what Peter is talking about in that passage. Not that Christ went to hell, which he could have. It's, it's, not, a, it's, it's not an unbiblical concept that um, Christ certainly could do that. Between his, after his death, he could, have, he could have gone there. My thought is he didn't really need to do that. He, he proclaimed his victory in his death and resurrection. But uh, some well-known and, and good theologians hold that view. So I'm not, I'm not saying it's a, bad, it's a bad view. But I just don't believe that's what's, uh, what's being talked about. Well, let me give you one, one last thing here. We're running out of time. But I hope you'll hold in there with me uh, so we can finish up here. Another possible view is that Christ went to the part of Hades called paradise. Now, you... Remember from the uh, parable Luke 16 talks about the rich man in Lazarus. This part of uh, that the, the Lazarus was went to is paradise, and he there's a gulf fixed between paradise and hell where the rich man went to, and they couldn't go there, but they were able to talk. And some have, have assumed that paradise is a is a part of hell or a compartment of hell. I, I don't believe that that's in view at all. Uh, I believe paradise is in heaven, or at least a part of heaven. And um, that <clears throat> Old Testament saints uh, go to heaven, or went to heaven, um, in what's called paradise or the bosom of Abraham. You'll <clears throat> remember in um, Paul writing in 2 Corinthians, he uh, after he had been stoned, he he talks about being caught up into paradise. 
he didn't he didn't know if he was in the body or out of the body. He wasn't sure exactly what happened to him, and many believe that he actually died uh, and was caught up into um, heaven, and the Lord brought him back to life. In any case, he talks about being caught up into paradise, and that's that's after uh, that's after Christ died, and and so I see paradise is not part of hell where Christ went to deliver um, the Old Testament saints. Um, but in his death, he did deliver. In his resurrection, he did deliver Old Testament saints and us, right? We're all given the victory through him. And so, and so I believe that what Paul is doing here in this in this passage in, uh, in Ephesians 4 is emphasizing the contrast between the, the, the condescension of Christ coming to earth, he's contrasting that and all the humility associated with that, and even the death associated with that, with the exaltation of Christ afterwards in his returning to heaven, having won the victory for us. I believe that's, that's all that Paul is doing there. And to, to read more into that, I think, is a mistake to try to, to say that Christ went to hell in, in this wording of descending to the lower parts of the earth or of, or the earth. Either way, I, I don't believe he's talking about more than the, the condescension. He went so low. Christ from heaven went so low to, to become one of us, to be born as a baby live with all the the, uh, the limitations of taking on flesh and to ultimately die for us, die in our place, taking upon Himself our judgment, our sin, and dying. That's the condensation. It was so low. And Paul is emphasizing that this same one is exalted. He's ascended high into heaven. And that wording is not a, not a strange Thing. You remember John 3, verse 13, where Christ says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And uh, later in John 6, he, he would use the analogy of the manna uh, and say that uh, the Son of Man, that, that Christ was the, he, He's come down, He's the bread of life, He's come down out of, out of heaven. And so all of these are ways to, to contrast this exaltation of Christ and His condescension. Of Christ, and so as he he says that he ascended, what does it mean? But that he is also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And this is the exaltation of Christ. He's imparted to us the blessings uh, as a, as a result of that. Let me just close this morning. And Hebrews 2 really sums it up well, I think. It's a victory that Christ has won for us. He says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing. That's his condescension. That's his coming uh, to the lower regions of the earth, even to die. He says he partook of the same things that he that through death he might destroy the one who had power over death, that is the devil, and deliver all those 
who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. See, we were, we were, the, we were those that are in lifelong fear of death. We were the slaves. We were the judged. And Christ died for us and delivered us. And He's uh, lifted us up out of that bondage and brought us with Him into this glorious kingdom of Christ. And all praise be to Him. And that's how we want to we close our service today. Singing, glory be to Christ. Amen.